Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Mesman. In every episode, we're exploring the intersection of art and faith. We'll talk to poets and writers, filmmakers, musicians, and visual artists who grapple with the mystery at the heart of religious experience. I recently contributed a poem to a zine called Ethel. When the editor shared the cover art for the issue, it shocked the group of women in which it was shared. Christians, agnostics, churched, and unchurched. The cover features a collage by artist Sarah Lefsik, in which an image of Mary as the Virgin of Guadalupe is overlaid by the instructional diagram from a box of tampons. Now, menstruating women see that diagram every single time we open a box of tampons. I remember studying it for hours even before I started my period, finding it kind of mysterious and maybe even a little titillating. My body was already a mystery to me, and this hadn't changed much even by the time I had a baby at 29 years old. When the nurse asked if I wanted to watch my daughter crown, I remember I recoiled. I really couldn't bear to look. What might it have meant to me to have grown up with images of Mary that showed her to have a body like mine, facing the same kinds of challenges and changes? How might it have altered my experience or my perception of menstruation, childbirth, to connect the workings of my own body to the workings of a woman's body deemed sacred and holy? The collage of Mary on the cover of Ethel was shocking in its newness to me, but after sitting with that image for a while, I found I came to see Mary as a little more familiar and myself as a little less mysterious. The artist had somehow rendered us both new. Dr. Katie Kresser, Seattle Pacific University's resident art historian, believes that great art teaches us that kind of empathy, unveils human nature, and forces us to think outside the box. Her essay, Christ the Chimera, the Riddle of the Monster Jesus, appeared in Image Issue 99. In it, she revisits two controversial renderings of Christ from the late 1990s, explaining why they might have more to offer people of faith than our initial reactions assumed. Katie Kresser, welcome to the Image Podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Glad to be here. So tell me a little bit about your faith background and how that has interacted with your scholarship as an art historian. All right. Well, um, my faith background, I'm actually from a small town in rural southern Indiana, and I grew up in a evangelical church. And I perceived it as, as I was growing up as extremely like legalistic and hypocritical, actually. I had a pretty ambivalent relationship with religion for a long time, probably up until I got to college. It, it was part of my identity that had formed me, but it was not something that I felt like I was all in on at all. And I felt extreme doubts and I wasn't happy with how it had gone on around me as I was growing up. Then I hit college and had a sort of come to Jesus experience, I guess. This is probably fairly comment. I teach college now, so I see this a lot now too, where um, I think getting out of that um, environment allowed me to reimagine what my faith could be to me and kind of to see other paradigms. Mm -hmm. And so I, yeah, I, I would say at that point in my life, I 
formed a relationship with Jesus, but not religion. And then I spent the next several years sort of crafting for myself kind of what that meant to me and, and looking at different cultural manifestations of Christianity and sort of figuring out, you know, how vast it actually is, how culturally vast, how kind of ideologically fluid it can be in a lot of different ways and how just capacious of so many different kinds of traditions and aesthetic expressions it is. And I, I think actually my attraction to art history and cultural history in general probably came out of that desire to have a faith I don't know, to, to, I guess, to completely realize just kind of the total richness of my faith, to understand just how completely rich my faith could be, how, how rich Christianity could be. Um, also, my dad is an artist, and I grew up in a house with a bunch of art history books. And so I think it was kind of natural that my desire to sort of culturally flesh out my faith was going to go in a visual direction, because I had just grown up with so many visuals around me. Okay, so since you talked about visuals... Um... Let's start with this question. Your essay begins with a description of one of the earliest visual representations of Jesus of Nazareth in art history. And I was really surprised as I was reading it. Christ's entrance into visual art history is really humble. Um, could you describe that for us? Yeah. Now, there is a lot of dispute about what the actual first representation of Christ is, but one of the candidates is something called the Aleximenos Graffito from Rome. Um, it was found on the wall of a house on the Palatine Hill, and it shows a really crude rendering of Jesus on the cross with a donkey head. Um, again, it, it looks almost like a child's drawing, but very crude. Jesus on a cross with a donkey head. And then um, it's got an inscription next to it that says Alexa Manos worshiping his God. And then there's a little figure next to the crucifix worshiping the donkey headed God. So it comes off as quite insulting. Yeah, and very humble. So it's either it's possible as I'm reading your essay um, and you're interpreting this image, it comes off as crude and insulting it could be an image mocking Christians for a sort of unfathomable God. Why would you worship this God? But then after reading some of your explications of it, I, I'm thinking and maybe it's also, it could, it's possible it could have been a really sophisticated image of the paradoxical nature of the gospel Christ who comes into his kingship as a criminal riding on an ass. So this man with the donkey head is kind of a really, it could have been a really smart way of depicting someone, your God in the time when it was not okay to be a Christian. So that's some, that's one of the ways that that image is chimerical. So if you could, if we could back up a little and you could tell me, where does the word chimera come from? What is a chimera? Yeah, Chimera was a kind of multifaceted, weird Frankenstein-type beast that was made up of the parts of other beasts. It's mentioned in Homer's Iliad. I, I'm not sure if that's the very first mention of it in history, but that's an early one. And I, it had a lion's head with a mane. Part of it was a snake, part of it was a goat, but it was this weird, just composite creature. Yeah, that, that everyone was scared of. So the assumption about the Aleximenos is that it was intended to offend or provoke. Is that right? I, that is the assumption. I think that's probably true myself. But one thing I tend to believe about, maybe I'll say just about every representation of Christ, is that people can intend to. I think so. And this, I, I love this idea that despite our intentions, Christ can gather those unto himself and transform them. Um, which your essay talks about beautifully throughout this description of 
the graffito as, you know, perhaps intended to provoke or insult reminds me so much of the controversy surrounding the works of Serrano mm-hmm. and Ophelia in the 90s, which you also discuss in your essay. So the assumption was by so many was that those works were intended to offend and provoke, which of, of course, in some way, maybe they were. But your essay argues for a much more generous interpretation. And you go so far as to say that Serrano might be viewed as a postmodern champion of the most fundamental Christian orthodoxy. So could you unpack that for yeah, us a little bit? For, for me, I, when I look at Serrano's own statements, and I, I can't quote any right now, I don't know the exact wording off the top of my head, but he has insisted again and again that he is a faithful Christian and has has been throughout his career. And one way he manifests that, I think, is by holding on to this idea of Christ's physicality and Christ's suffering in a way that a lot of other Christians have tried to kind of whitewash or paper over because it's just unpleasant. It's unpleasant to think about how God was actually flesh, how he bled, how he had sores and looked disgusting and grotesque, and how other human beings killed him. I mean, it's just all a bit hard to think about, and we can kind of whitewash We can try to make it seem like some purely spiritual thing that happened where Christ redeemed us all with a sort of sweep of a hand without any suffering. I mean, I know none of us would actually say that's true, but we try to ignore the suffering part. We try to ignore the physicality part. And in Serrano's art, he has stressed that again and again and again. And I think when we lose that, the physicality and the suffering, we lose a lot kind of that's at the core of Christianity. And so I appreciate him bringing that back to us, bringing that back in front of us over the many decades of his career. So Serrano's most famous work, maybe, that we would all recognize from back in the Mm -hmm. culture wars is Piss Christ, which shows a crucifix submerged in urine. And you talk about in your essay the idea of negativity dominance and how that impacts our reaction to that kind of work and provokes one response in us Um, that isn't actually particularly Christian. So could you expand on that a little bit for us? Yeah, I think, and and here I am citing in in my essay the work of Richard Beck, a a psychiatrist or psychologist, I don't want to get that wrong, but yeah, who in a, a, actually a devotion that I read of his, where he's kind of meditating on the impact of that image, is talking about how strange it is actually that Christians see the piss as a defiling Christ rather than Christ redeeming the piss in a way. So in a way, It's like gross fleshly things defile him instead of him redeeming them. When the whole point of the crucifixion and the resurrection, right, is for um, God to be redeeming all of human flesh and kind of pulling it back up into himself. And so we really kind of dishonor Christ in a way when we think that a little bit of piss is going to, you know, bring him down. Um, Yeah. You also note that art therapists have been stressing the adaptive power of art making since around the 1940s. Talk about some art theorists that laid the groundwork for considering the chimerical and visual art. Let's talk about a little bit about how pattern recognition, in particular, you're talking about chimerical pattern making, um, kind of cobbling together images from different sources, different traditions, helps us to cope with the reality of suffering and change. 
and how that might be of particular resonance for people of faith. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the essay, I talk about how a lot of art, if you look back at art history and the way art has been made over the centuries, even the millennia, you see patterns of the development of schemata. And so a schemata or a schema rather in the singular, a schema is just a pat formulaic way of representing something so that it's consistent, completely clear and recognizable, predictable. And then you see these transformations occur where schema get broken up and something new gets injected into the formula and it's rather disorienting at first. It's scary. It can be disturbing. But what it does is it reinvents the thing that you're representing and, and in order to kind of do honor to its fullness. And so, yeah, I, I think a lot of the function of artists in the world through time has been to recognize when cultures have gotten so mired in their schemata, so mired in their formulas that they cannot apprehend reality authentically anymore, and they need to be shaken up. And so the artist takes those schemata, takes those formulas and jumbles them, injects something new in order to shock people out of their complacency, you could say, and make people start looking at reality truly again, making them actually start paying attention again to the richness of, of the universe outside of them. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes from the essay is, great artists are the ones who force a paradigm shift, literally reshaping the outlines of human perception. And I think it's so important to remember and pay attention to how artists are helping people of faith to resist that sort of deadening of vision. And it's one of the important functions of art to disrupt the calcifications of faith. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I completely agree. I was, uh, before this interview, I was actually, I had this piece of paper and I was writing down notes of things I kind of wanted to stress and kind of uh, along with what we were saying then, I do want to stress that I think artists are not necessarily more perceptive than everyone else. They're just better at expressing their perceptions. And so I think it's important for artists not to get on their high horse <laughs> in a way. I think it's easy to talk about, oh, yeah, artists blow people's minds and, and stuff like that, and they change the world. But I think what artists are doing, they're, they're performing a service because they're sort of unlocking, in a sense, what everybody already knows deep down. But other, other people mm don't have the tools to express that. And artists are the ones who have the tools. And so they're kind of performing this humble service for the rest of us to help us finally see the thing we know deep down, but we just couldn't quite get our hands around it. We couldn't get our minds around it. And artists help us do that. So we're kind of all in this struggle together. We all have the same deep longings and we all kind of help each other grasp those longings ultimately through, the, through this kind of give and take. You talk also about how chimerical representations of Jesus meditate on what you say is the miraculous improbability of God taking fleshly form. And we've touched on that a couple of times already in the interview, but I have to, I laughed out loud when you referenced C.S. Lewis's analogy for the incarnation. He said, if you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a mm -hmm. crab. And it's like such a typical um, snappy mm -hmm, Lewis mm -hmm. line, but... I don't think I've ever seen also Lewis and Serrano and Ophelia roped into the same conversation. Mm -hmm. So I, I just thought that was hysterically yeah. funny. Um, but here Lewis seems to be expressing verbally what those artists expressed visually. Yeah. And I, I don't think he is often compared to them, but he, you know, he's talking about a Christ who encompasses and redeems everything. Um, not 
a Christ who is simply above all, but that contains all. And you reference that this in the essay that this is biblical, it's from Colossians. And you make an interesting pivot from there, a case for humanity as much more than a slug. And when I really thought about it, the the C.S. Lewis remark is really kind of demeaning of humanity. So you're making a case for humanity as much more than a slug. Mm -hmm. That's the interesting pivot in the essay. Mm -hmm. If we're made in the image of God, if we're truly made in the image of God, then you ask, are we not God's artful effort to match himself? Mm -hmm. So, so much more than a slug or a crab. So tell me about how that capacity for adaptation and change or to be and to comprehend what is chimerical might be the key to a living and evolving faith that isn't calcified. Yeah. I'll, I'll inject really quickly. I, yeah, I'm just C.S. Lewis uses so many visual metaphors in his writing, and I'm just imagining that if he tried to express himself as a visual artist and painted a canvas with yeah. like a crab on the sand with a halo and then labeled it mm-hmm. Jesus, that that would get totally mm-hmm. protested. You know, there'd be people picketing outside, right. but it's C.S. Lewis, right? But anyway, yeah, I think there's this tension we have to hold between this the sort of the complete humility of what Jesus became and then sort of the infinity that is sort of latent in him and that he continues to become, I guess. And what I find myself thinking about is just this paradox, this difficulty of trying to understand how how the infinite becomes finite and yet remains infinite. And so we have this mm-hmm. uh, kind of, as you hinted, this idea of adaptation and evolution is extremely central to that idea where you're infinite, you become finite, you become embodied. So, so in a way you're manifesting just one tiny little facet of yourself and you being God here, he's manifesting mm-hmm. one or a few tiny little facets of himself. But because Jesus was authentically God, he continues to shift and change and evolve and manifest even more and more and more facets. So the infinity, I guess, the infinite uh, dimension here is almost a dimension of time and not a dimension of of space. So I think about heaven and I think about um, just the eternity that we're all supposed to inhabit one day. And I think about Christ just constantly evolving to manifest more and more and more of that infinite that, that he hinted at when he came to earth. But as he ascends into heaven, still in his body and still bearing his bodily wounds, he continues to evolve and to adapt and just take on more and more and more of those facets forever and ever and ever, never ending. And then as we join him and become part of his body, as we are limited and physical ourselves, we too take on more and more of those facets. And the Bible has this weird kind of monstrous analogy of like the body of Christ and Christ is the head. And it makes you think of this big, weird aggregate thing of like these creatures all writhing together and like making one bigger creature. And it seems so weird, but in a sense, it's a way of communicating this idea that because we're all finite, God became finite for us and all the rest of us are finite too. And it's going to take all of us together in our finitude to manifest the infinity that God is. And it's going to keep happening Mm -hmm. over, over eternity from millennia and millennia and eons and eons, just more and more and more adaptation and more and more and more evolution in order to kind of match the infinity that is God. And so it's just going to be changed forever, which I think is a really exciting idea and it's mind blowing. And, um, yeah, and it, it's hard, it's hard wow, to get our yeah. minds around because we live in this finite little space with such short little lifespans and we, we just cannot, you know, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Right. So, Yeah.
I'm also thinking about, we've been talking about Jesus as adaptive and evolving. And then you posit a sort of approach to looking at art. You reference Zacchaeus and the Pharisees. So there's a sort of Zacchaeus perspective to observing Christ. And then there's a, a Pharisaical perspective. And could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. And I, this, for me, you bring this up and it reminds me of some of the problems I had with my upbringing and with perceiving religion as a very static thing where there are just rules that you follow and you always follow the same rules and you don't step outside of those boxes, right? That's the Pharisees. The Pharisees embody a formula, a schema. They don't, they don't ever shift from that. They don't alter. Even when they're presented mm-hmm. with the very face of God, they still don't adapt. They're so enthralled by, they're so imprisoned in their formulas. And then you have Zacchaeus who, you know, I guess if he embodies a formula, formula. It's a pretty bad one. But anyway, yeah, pretty bad one. You know, he's not considered this super virtuous, righteous guy, but what Mm -hmm. he is able to do is adapt. And when he sees the face of God, he's able to change. He's able to embody that adaptation and evolution that helps him kind of be transformed into a child of God. And it's that ability to recognize and to adapt that I think is central to the Christian experience. It's not the ability simply to adhere to formulas. You've said that if art can help us understand the past, it can surely help us to understand our neighbor. So, I mean, we've talked about how artists aren't superhuman heroes, but if art can build bridges today, when we seem ever more divided yeah. and mm-hmm. stuck in our camps, mm-hmm. how, how, can, how can artists build bridges? Well, yeah, good question. Well, I I think one thing, just the core function of the artist today, especially, I think, which is to destroy those formulas or destroy those schemata, um, it's when we get locked in our mental formulas that we cannot see the people around us. Um, if, If they happen to be locked in a different formula. There's just no recognition and no communication that can happen. It's like each party is kind of in their own sort of cultural prison in a way. And Mm -hmm. so if artists can break us out of those formulas and get us into a space where we're not trapped in a formula anymore, that's when we can kind of start to see and to recognize the other things around us that were always part of a different formula that that just didn't fit with what we expected. Mm -hmm. So I think just that sort of estranging quality or that upending quality that art can do. It can force us into a space of encounter. And then, I mean, I do think there's such a thing as universal human experience. And I I think when art forces us out of our formulas, it can... I don't know. It can point us to a place where we can all meet, I suppose, and where we can all recognize our common humanity. And I think there are artworks that do a great job of, you know, capturing just some little golden nugget of what that common humanity looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so we can kind of gather around that and recognize that. Are there contemporaries right now who are, who we should know about, who are working in this vein work that you would point us to? That you just didn't mention in the essay or didn't have, you know, I'm sure that there are others that demonstrate some of these points. I'm just always trying to find ways to lift up um, those who have maybe Mm -hmm. haven't gotten the attention that they deserve. Well, I think I'm going to sort of take an easy road here and I'm going to mention a couple of people who are in the current issue of Image with me. Perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I know that, um, well, first of all, so um, the cover article in the current issue is about the artist Jonathan Anderson. And Mm -hmm. I think what Bruce Herman, the author, writes about um, Mr. Anderson goes so well with what I'm trying to argue in my essay. He he shows how 
Mr. Anderson's artworks really try to disrupt the expected view, oftentimes through literally blocking your view in the center of the painting with um, maybe some thick paint. But they literally try to block your view so that your expectations are thwarted and you have, you're kind of pushed into a space where you don't know what to expect and it's an uncertain space and it's a space that opens you up to something bigger. Mm-hmm. So I think um, Jonathan Anderson's artwork embodies that very well in a certain way. And Bruce Herman, who wrote the article, is an artist himself. And his most recent work is deals with portraits, portraits of people very well known to him, people he loves. And they're just these meticulous meditative portraits um, slightly reminiscent of Byzantine icons, but also very modern, that are just really attempting to render the presence of the person in the portrait and really just give you a sense of true encounter. I know for Bruce lately in his artwork, kind of forcing that sense of true encounter has been very important to him and painting in a very intuitive way that tries to get away from formulas so that you can have that encounter, that that's something that's been very important to him as well. So I see both of those artists trying to do that a great deal in their work right now. Great. I want to throw in really quickly, I don't know if you guys like to like make references to headlines, but yeah, there's currently an exhibition at the Harvard Divinity School called Icons of Science Fiction. Have you guys, have you heard of this? Mm-mm. It's being picketed right yeah. now. It's being picketed right wow. now. Yeah, it's um, it's a Star Wars figures and maybe some other science fiction characters that have been rendered in the manner of Byzantine icons. Oh my yeah, gosh. And, no, so, <laughs> and so it's kind of, we're seeing a similar kind of, you know, phenomenon where there's picketing. There's, there've been a lot of articles on conservative media, like dissing this exhibit and how irreverent it is. Uh, these elite institutions have double standards about like which re- religions they'll offend and which ones they sort of kowtow to and all of this. Mm-hmm. Stuff. It's another example of negativity dominance, I think. Mm-hmm. Whereas you could see this as a playful attempt to, you know, find divinity everywhere. Instead, they mm-hmm. see it as something that's bringing Christ down and I don't we don't right. see it that way so anyway right a, a ripped from the headlines example right there oh great great yeah. example mm-hmm. thank you so much yeah. I'll look for that mm-hmm. thank you so much Katie for being our guest today yeah you're welcome my pleasure fun to talk to you I'm gonna end yeah I'm gonna end the interview by reading the last paragraph of your essay which I think is just beautiful one of the really exceptional things about this work is it's just it's a fascinating work of scholarship and research but it's also beautifully poetically written it's very moving it's very inspiring to read so I want to share that with the audience thank you The chimerical Jesus is and was the most adaptive being of all. His eyes are like fire and also like doves. His legs are like marble and also like bronze. His hair is at once woolen white and raven black. His mouth is sweet but bears a double-edged sword. Of all people, he's the most able to flow with eternal life, evolving endlessly, so that bodily destruction could not, in the end, stop his movement. He did not fail to run his race with utter dedication, and so he continues to run, leaping and dancing, forever. Like a prism with a million facets, he continues to reflect new lights. Every new thing that is made will be integrated into him. 
His chimerical beauty will grow ever more impossible, ever more astounding, ever more riotously complex yet harmonious, until the angels can only laugh in astonishment. Satan's efforts to deform will only launch new, unexpected patterns and harmonies. And so it will be forever and ever. Amen. Please visit the Image website at www.imagejournal.org. There, you can learn more about each episode of the podcast and find links to books and other resources discussed. You can also subscribe to the quarterly print journal and access the Image archives, more than 30 years worth. To learn more about how you can support the creation of this podcast and the artists we feature, visit patreon.com slash imagepodcast. If you become a patron, you'll receive some exclusive image merchandise, access to exclusive content, and more. Your pledge will help us continue the conversation about art, faith, and mystery.